are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome back, everyone, to our study of the latter divine ascent. And uh, this evening, we are picking up with step number 15 on purity of heart and chastity. And uh, we're on page 144, about halfway down the page with paragraph 31. This, my beloved adversary, and yet not mine, the flesh, was called death by Paul. Who, says he, will deliver me from this body, the body of this death? And another theologian calls it a passionate, slavish, and nocturnal enemy. I used to long to know why it was given such names. If the flesh was, as was said above, is death, whoever has conquered it undoubtedly does not die. But who is the man that shall live and not see the death of the impurity of his flesh? So the use of flesh, we find uh, the word flesh, we find used uh, uh, many times within the scriptures and often referring uh, to those parts of ourselves as human beings, our makeup of human beings touched by sin. And uh, I believe the Greek word is sarx. And uh, so anything that is, uh, would be considered a part of our fallen nature, anything that is touched by sin that we have to struggle with or leads to a kind of tendency to sin. So any of our appetites uh, as human beings uh, would fall under this category. And, uh, and so John is drawing our attention to it here uh, in the way that Paul is looking at it, who will deliver me from this, uh, this body of death, uh, our ultimately our sin and its greatest consequence is death itself and which is inevitable for us uh, it has lost its finality uh, in light of what has been given to us in christ and by the grace of the cross uh, but nonetheless we continue to struggle with it on a number of different levels concupiscence um, so weakness of will uh, we often even when we see the truth about uh, certain aspects of our life and how we give ourselves over to temptation, we often don't have the will, the strength of will uh, to uh, set those temptations aside or darkness of intellect that uh, often we don't see things with a kind of clarity. And so we'll run after things that seem to promise us a kind of fulfillment or satisfaction emotionally or otherwise. And uh, so part of our ascetic life is to deal with this reality, as both Paul speaks about it and uh, St. John in this text, 
that uh, one who's overcome it is uh, free from death itself, but who of us can overcome it uh, in reality in our day-to-day -day life? Uh, one has to be wholly given over to God uh, and perfected by his grace in order not to be touched uh, in this way or not to have to be at least struggling with it in uh, many different ways throughout the course of a given day. And uh, so it's really until we enter the grave that we, we struggle with the flesh and we struggle with appetites that can be misdirected, uh, not towards that is what is good or as God intends, but simply towards self-satisfaction. If, I'm sorry, I ask you to consider this question, he writes, who is greater, he who dies and rises again, or he who does not die at all? Those who extol the latter are deceived, for Christ both died and rose. But he who extols the former urges that for the dying, rather the falling, there is no cause whatever for despair. And so to uh, deny this reality and the, the weight and the significance of it, uh, which we are... Uh, very skilled at doing, you know, pushing the reality of death out to the margins of our consciousness. Uh, whereas, the, and whereas the fathers constantly uh, call us to have a remembrance of death precisely because it uh, heightens our awareness of uh, the, the weight and the, the significance of our choices and our actions and how we are living our, our life on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare and, uh, and to deny the reality of death in a sense is also to lose sight of the fundamental reality of our life. And it means that one has lost sight of the spiritual battle, uh, what is held out to us in Christ, but also uh, the, the depth of the struggle that we are engaged in. Uh, the, I think the more that we engage in the ascetic life, the, the more we begin to see uh, that we are warred against. And it's precisely here uh, in the flesh that it takes place uh, in a very powerful way and almost unrelenting fashion for us. And uh, when we are freely giving ourselves over to our, our passions and to the needs of the flesh, then we aren't as aware of where our thoughts are taking us, our imagination, or the temptations that are coming to us moment to moment. And uh, I think we've talked here before that some have said that, you know, before I entered into the spiritual life, before I gave any attention to this, I, life seemed to be easier for me. The moment I started to pray or to fast or to read scriptures, all of a sudden I seemed to be struggling more. And uh, this isn't uncommon. The moment that one enters into the fray uh, the, is the moment one begins to be attacked with a, a great ferocity. Uh, precisely right from the beginning, I think to make a person lose heart, to lead them into a kind of despondency, that it's not worth struggling against this. And, uh, and the longer that one has not uh, engaged in the battle, I think the more difficult it becomes uh, not to fall into that kind of despondency when one has freely given themselves over 
uh, for decades of their life than uh, uprooting uh, the cause of the passions uh, becomes more and more difficult. We've talked about this before, and one of the common images of the fathers is uh, uprooting a sapling. You can pull it out of the ground, roots and all, uh, without any difficulty whatsoever. But when it has taken root and grown into a full tree, that you can wrap your arms around it and you're not going to, to move it at all. And uh, we can find ourselves in those circumstances. You know, in Christ, there's certainly always hope for us. And I think that becomes clearer too as we engage in this battle that it's only by the grace of God, only by what is supernatural, that the natural can be ordered uh, toward God. So it's only by grace that this warfare uh, can be won. And so we can't have any illusions as we enter into it, that it's only by strength of will or seeing things clearly about it that we can overcome it. Uh, it's only by relying more and more that, uh, on what has come to us through, through Christ and, and through the sacraments and through the life of prayer. Any questions or comments so far? Okay, number 33, and our merciless foe, the teacher of fornication, says that our man befriending God is very merciful towards this passion, since it is a natural one. But if we observe the guile of the demons, we shall find that after sin has been committed, they say that God is a just and inexorable judge. They said the former in order to lead us into sin and now the latter to drown us in despair. And, uh, you know, I think we only need to, again, to look at our life, and we've probably seen this happen many times before, and certainly as a priest and talking to people over the course of, of the years, uh, I've heard it uh, hundreds of times that, uh, that, you know, the stepping into the abyss of sin is an easy thing, crawling out again, is the difficult thing. And, uh, and one of the things that makes it particularly difficult is that the temptations come to us exactly how John describes them here, that it's put into our mind that this is no big deal. It's natural. It's part of who we are as human beings, as if because it is natural, it has no moral significance or weight for us in terms of how we experience ourselves, our relationship to others, or to God. And, uh, and so we're easily then drawn forward to satisfy the, the appetite, to give way to the temptation uh, without seeing the weight of that. But the moment that we do, the moment that there is a fall, then the demons become our greatest accusers. How could you do this? And fill the mind and the heart with shame uh, and lead us, if they can, into this kind of despair and hopelessness. Uh, how could I give myself over to something such as this, uh, perhaps even after years of not experiencing it, if we find ourselves given over to pride, uh, oftentimes we can fall into the particular sin uh, that we feel that we've overcome. Michael writes, is there any truth to the idea that God is particularly merciful about natural sins? C.S. Lewis said some, something similar in mere Christianity. Well, you know, I, I think partly because, and I can understand why he would say it, and I don't think the fathers would disagree with it in the sense that 
because they are so tied to our appetites that they are the most difficult to overcome, at least initially. But uh, as the spiritual battle progresses, uh, it may take us quite a while to, to overcome those that are tied to, to the flesh. But the spiritual passions are, are far more difficult and far more challenging. Uh, pride, envy, uh, despondency, all of these things can be far more challenging uh, to uproot and to, uh, simply because we don't see them fully. Whereas with the sins of the flesh, we often are very much aware of what's going on on a physical level. And so I try to steer away from this kind of thinking only because I think the spiritual battle as a whole, whether we're starting struggling with the sins of the flesh or something like pride, it's equally important for us to enter into that battle with a kind of fierceness. If you remember, John early on says, nobody likes to go up against a plucky fighter. And if from the beginning, you know, we enter into the spiritual battle with, with this sense that uh, we are ever so weak and that we cannot overcome this, then it's going to affect the way that we engage in the ascetic life. And one of the things that the fathers tell us is that when it comes to the flesh, when it comes to the body, we cannot pamper it. Uh, and even Philip Neary, you know, as you know, who I have a great devotion to, uh, was very abstemious, very protective of his purity from the earliest, his earliest years, uh, fasted uh, constantly, uh, ate very little throughout the course of the day, and prayed uh, in the catacombs all night long, so keeping vigil, and because he knew uh, how easily one could be drawn into this. And, uh, and so it's not to be taken lightly. And I, I think we have the tendency perhaps to project that onto God because we wish it to be so, that God would look lightly on this because it, and I think it can be a kind of temptation uh, to tell ourselves that it's, again, it's really not all that significant. We're, sort of doing what the devil is, is saying here, uh, as, as John tells us in this paragraph, uh, that uh, God looks at these natural sins with uh, a particular mercy. Well, I think he looks at our sin and our struggle with sin with mercy and compassion. But uh, I think there has to be a kind of truth there about the weight and the gravity of it in order to help us to develop what they saw as essential in the spiritual battle, which is hatred for sin, that our love for God, our love for virtue uh, requires us then to have uh, a, a hatred for sin in such uh, a way that we uh, do not open the door to it easily and uh, or subject ourselves to the things that, that lead to it. I think uh, even if we aren't falling into the particular sins that are associated with the flesh, we, we can often be very attached to the things that lead to them. And it's only our hatred for sin, and again, our deep love for God and virtue that leads us then to set aside those things and avoid those things that can give rise to the passions. And so 
rather than sort of speculate on whether or not God looks at particular ones with mercy, I think it's better for us to keep a kind of clarity of vision that we want to enter wholeheartedly into the spiritual battle. Because as John says, you know, no one wants to go up against the plucky fighter. So if you enter in fiercely to the battle, uh, the evil one is not going to see you as easy pickings, as it were, that you're going to put up a fight. And uh, part of, you know, our uh, gratitude for the grace of God is also to take hold of it as fully as we can. And uh, so you hear the saints often telling us that after we receive communion or after we go to confession to take upon ourselves greater devotions in order that that grace might bear as much fruit in our lives as possible. And that we should be prepared specifically for this kind of temptation after we receive the sacraments. Because when we have a fall immediately after having received, having received the gift of God, we're most likely to be drawn into this deep shame and despair that John is talking about here. So I think we want to keep our, our focus pretty clear here about the nature of the spiritual battle. And I think for so long, we, we have this sense that, you know, that the spiritual life does not involve uh, a bloody war against sin, despite the fact that the cross stands before us, constantly showing us that reality. Daniel. Um, this, this just made me think of um, kind of, because he's talking about how, how the devil like inverts this and just, I guess what you were talking about there too, made me think about like the example, right? The, the, the concrete example that Christ gives us of the woman caught in adultery and dragged before him. And he does, you know, it's interesting because I think in that it's like, oh, and it can almost lend itself to maybe that C.S. Lewis type of interpretation of it. But, um, but they, but they say to him, right? They say that Moses or the law, right? The law says that he should be stoned. And, and that, you know, that, that the law, the law is the lawgiver is, is God, right? So he's saying like, I don't look lightly upon sin. And, um, but then, but then he flips it back as, okay. And the one who has the authority to stone is the one without sin, which kind of negates everybody else from the equation. And, and then he says at the end, you know, is anyone here to, to judge you and, and condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, neither do I. So it's very, it's the opposite of what they're saying here, right? It's the opposite of the devil saying, hey, God doesn't care. And then, hey, he actually hates you now. It's him saying, I care a lot. But then, but then I'm the only one who has the actual, I'm the only one who's sinless. I'm really the only one who is free to enact the law perfectly and and i i'm i'm not here to condemn you and it kind of feels like that keeps it whole more than maybe the c.s lewis version of well this is natural and that's not as natural and so he doesn't care as much about this and where he does i would yeah. say i think we have a tendency to project a lot upon god and uh i think what has been revealed to us is that there's only one way that we are allowed to relate to one another to other human beings and that is to love them 
and to treat them with compassion and mercy as we have been treated. And uh, the problem there was hypocrisy, uh, that they were not able to see their own sin and need for that forgiveness and mercy and pride, uh, the pride behind it. And, uh, but, you know, I think the fathers work very hard and this is why they begin almost to a T. They all, all begin with the, the, the passions in their spiritual writings because we can't leapfrog over dealing with the reality of the poverty of our sin and the nature of this spiritual struggle. And at the very beginning of all of their list of the things that we struggle with are the sins of the flesh, whether it's gluttony, lust, and then we'll be moving on to avarice here, that it is primarily through the, the, the things that are most a part of us, you know, our, our appetites, our natural desires that we are most easily drawn in to, to sin. You know, what we see and perceive and experience through the senses uh, is always going to be the easiest way, I think, to enliven the passions within us. And the further that we get in the spiritual life, the, the deeper and more psychological the battle becomes, the more subtle it becomes. But in any case, we are, are to be battling. So why don't we move on and see a little bit more of what John says to us here. Number 34, as long as a sorrow and despair, as sorrow and despair are present, we do not so easily abandon ourselves to further sin. But when sorrow and despair are quenched, the tyrant speaks to us again of God's mercy. So it's, you know, there's this psychological game that you can see being played here, that our sorrow our, as we've talked about so often in the past, our contrition is an essential part for our healing. It leads to repentance, uh, leads us to turn to God and all the things that, that bring us healing. Eventually, the fruit of that repentance, of that contrition, is joy. And if you remember, we've talked about the specific word that they use is uh, sorrowful joy, that one is always tied to the other, that uh, our sorrow of contrition uh, should not be something that leads us into despair, but into the arms of God and to seek his mercy. Uh, but what the evil one does is he plays this game, you know, he becomes one who uh, urges us into it, then becomes our accuser to shame us, to throw us into despair, and in throwing us into despair, uh, uh, he then draws us uh, back into the sin in a, in a greater measure. And uh, this is often a big struggle in this spiritual life. I think when one, a person falls into sin, uh, when the accusation is coming from the evil one, that there's less of a, a quick movement toward God seeking that mercy. Often one becomes wrapped up in the shame, and the shame then gives rise to the turning back to the particular sin in order to find some solace and comfort, even if it's momentary, momentary. And the thought often goes through the mind, well, I've committed this sin and I'm gonna to go to confession, but because I've already fallen into the sin, you know, I might as well go ahead and commit, commit it again. 
you know, we, we find this whole psychological battle taking place within our minds. And this is where John is telling us we need to be very clear uh, about the two uh, different kinds of sorrow here. The kind of the sorrow and despair that arise from the evil one is only going to eventually lead us into further sin. Whereas the, the sorrow and the, the despair that we often experience when we uh, fall into sin, but that leads us to repentance, where our faith is present and leads us back toward God, brings healing. And so we know we can see it becomes a measure for us of not only where the temptation is coming from, but in some ways the depth of our faith in the mercy and compassion of God, if it's leading us back to him. If we believe in that mercy and compassion, then we're going to, to run to the arms of God and to, to seek the healing that he alone can offer us. And oftentimes we, in that shame or sorrow, uh, we'll, we'll nurse it. You know, we, we'll take hold of the evil one's words, we'll be self-condemning. Uh, and as we fall into this kind of uh, distress about ourselves, which is often rooted more in the blow to our self-esteem than it is to, than we see it as being, having an effect upon our relationship with God. That blow to our self-esteem makes us feel worse about ourselves than then makes us to turn to the things of this world to sort of, to give us this feeling of fullness or worth. And it doesn't have to be falling back into that same sin again, as we will see with avarice, a person can, when, uh, uh, gluttony or lust, uh, you know, no longer sates the, the human heart, then avarice comes into play and it's unquenchable. You know, the more that one has, the more that one wants. Uh, and so right from the beginning, I, I think he wants us to see this, this is the nature of the battle and the evil ones relentless. You need to see how the human mind and heart works here in order to engage in the battle fully. And so there, there has to be kind of a, of a humility of heart uh, here when we do find ourselves falling into sin, you know, to humbly acknowledge it before God and to turn back to him and to trust in uh, the, the blessing and the grace that repentance is for us as human beings, to take hold of it. And later on in the text, John will say that uh, if a person falls every single day and repents every day, know that his guardian angel looks upon him with great joy. And we hear that echoed within the scriptures, that when a sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. And in another place, it says all the angels of heaven rejoice. So this is the weight and significance that repentance has in the eyes of God, our willingness to turn back to him in our poverty and our need to receive that mercy. The demon's always going to be working against that. Number 35, the Lord being incorruptible and incorporeal rejoices in the purity and incorruptibility of our body. But nothing gives such joy to the demon, some say, as the stench of fornication, and no other passion so gladdens them as the defilement of the body. So here, John, I think contrary to 
I think what we were talking about a little earlier is saying that in the eyes of God, that this kind of purity of heart as that goes along with the, the purity of, of the flesh, you know, the purification of that appetites is something that is very pleasing in the eyes of God, that are entering into this struggle and ordering things, you know, all of our appetites and desires toward God or towards the good uh, reveals, uh, again, a kind of gratitude for the grace that is given, but also uh, increases our capacity uh, for discernment to see with a greater clarity. When we are blinded by the strength of our passions, we are uh, hobbled in the spiritual life in great measure. And so even the smallest of gains in purity of heart increases our capacity for discernment and to see the tr truth, to make distinctions, to discriminate between various kinds of thoughts. And, uh, and so this is why also the demons, when they find a person wrapped in it, uh, nothing so gladdens them, he says, because as long as they are held or we are held in the grip of this particular passion, we often remain blind to our greater dignity and destiny in Christ. If we're only seeking this passing fulfillment of the flesh, and its appetites, we're never going to see what the uh, has become possible for us through the, the passion of our Lord. The uh, capacity to participate, participate in divine life. And, uh, and the demons know that once one has tasted uh, something of the freedom that comes through chastity, this ability to love others and oneself in a rightly ordered way allows us to, to give ourselves over in love fully, to love and be loved as God intends. And once one has tasted the fruit of that and the joy of that, the demons know that they are going to be drawn forward in the spiritual battle, that they are going to be urged on or, or experience a kind of urgent longing to know that love in greater measure. And so they will try to keep us in the darkness as, as, as long as they can. Purity is the fellowship with and likeness to God so far as is possible for men. So made in the image and likeness of God, we, we know there is no sin in God and that there is no impediment to his love and giving himself in love. And so, and that there is no ego-driven uh, uh, sense in the, the giving of that love either. Uh, whereas for, for us, there often is. And, uh, and so to have purity of heart, is to have this greater freedom in loving. Again, we often, I think, tie it so strictly to sexual purity when it really has to do with rightly ordered love or capacity to love and to see things as they really are, others as they really are in the eyes of God and to have that be something that pulls us forward. And so John will tell us this is fellowship and true likeness to God that we lose 
that those impediments that uh, keep us from giving ourselves over fully. And John adds, obviously, the caveat, as far as this is possible for men, you know, he's not unaware of the nature and the depth of that struggle and has had to endure it himself. The mother of sweetness is earth and dew, and the mother of purity is stillness with obedience. Dispassion of the body attained by stillness has often been shaken on coming into contact with the world, but that obtained by obedience is genuine and inviolable everywhere. So stillness, both external and internal, that we, through a life of prayer and through uh, moving from the multiplicity of thoughts to simplicity upon God, uh, are, begin to experience this stilling of uh, the passions within us. And John tells us that that which comes through having a life of stillness, like the monks going to the desert, free themselves from so many of the things in this world that become a source of agitation of heart, that stimulate the passions, that become a source of distraction for us. And so in one fell swoop, they cast aside everything and enter into the silence of the desert. But, John says, the, the greater source of purity is obedience that allows a person, wherever they are living, wherever they find themselves in this world, uh, able to maintain that purity of heart, uh, because obedience is tied to God in a, a relational way. And we are conforming ourselves to Christ. And we've talked about this before uh, many times in these past weeks, the obedience uh, having as its root to hear, ab adore, that we seek to listen to the word of God as it comes to us, allowing it to transform us, uh, but remaining ever faithful to it. And this fidelity uh, to the word as God has given, to, given it to us in Christ, not just written on stone tablets, but in flesh and blood, and as we receive in the Holy Eucharist, our obedience, our fidelity to that word means that no matter where we live, no matter how surrounded we are by the things that are impure and contrary to the will of God, that we can live uh, unaffected by it. And so it becomes a kind of invincible purity, not in the sense that we have confidence in ourselves, or that it's rooted in our own asceticism, but that we are so rooted in our love for God that our only desire is to do his will. And so the more we are immersed in that and the more we conform to Christ, the more invincible that purity becomes. And you know, a person who's reached this level is not likely to be aware of that, you know, that the depth of their humility would equal that uh, obedience, I imagine, and so would attribute naturally all things to the grace of God or to the prayers of their elder. And so, you know, it's interesting, I think when we read the fathers, all of a sudden we're thrown into a different perception of reality itself, that our, our, our vision of 
who God is for us, our vision of, of ourselves as human beings, the life that we are called to, the love that we are capable of, and the virtue that we are capable of, uh, takes on the dimensions of God. And uh, this can be a frightening thing to us, you know, that to simply be good people on the level of natural virtue is not what we are called to. Now we are called to live our life fully in Christ. And that means to love as he loves, to give ourselves as he gives himself. It means to become Eucharist, to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out in love for others, to withhold nothing and not to cling to ego, to self-esteem uh, uh, in such a way that we uh, put conditions on our love for others. You know, the moment that somebody utters a harsh word to us, you know, often we'll, we will say, that's it, I've had it, you know, and uh, move to cut them out, at least from our, you know, the view of our minds and our hearts. And we're put in this uncomfortable position, I think, when we read the fathers closely of saying, uh, okay, maybe I haven't been listening to the gospel or looking at the cross and understanding the life that has come through it in quite this way. And I think that's the real uh, power of the fathers and what makes their writings enduring because they're so rooted in the gospel. It's the gospel lived out. They're living icons of the gospel for us, and their writings for us make the gospel come, come alive. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we can't read this unless it's going to be, we're going to keep it completely obscured in our minds without saying, without being moved to conversion. And uh, you remember Saint, uh, not Saint Seraphim, but Father Seraphim Rose saying, you know, we can't be dilettantes. You know, we're not reading, picking up the fathers to be able to say, I read John Climacus, The Ladder of Divine Ascent, that has no worth whatsoever unless it brings about conversion, repentance of heart. Okay, number 38. I have seen pride lead to humility. And I remembered him who said, who hath known the mind of the Lord. The pit and offspring of conceit is a fall, but a fall is often an occasion of humility for those who are willing to use it to their advantage. Isn't that a wonderful insight uh, that, uh, and we've talked about this before from Proverbs, pride rideth before the fall. So the image is somebody on horseback who becomes overly confident, not realizing they're still riding a, a wild beast. And so they aren't attentive to what's going on. And the moment that they feel they have control of the horse is the moment that they're tossed to the ground, they're tossed down. So pride rideth before the fall. And so often in the spiritual life, that's true. The moment that we think we have control over our appetites, over the passions, is when we fall into conceit, and then we fall often into the sin that is most humbling for us. And John says that this is where pride can lead to humility, that if we take hold of that to our advantage, if we allow ourselves to be taught by it, allow ourselves to be humbled. And you remember 
humility means truthful living. Uh, and it's rooted in, again, humus, that we are dirt, we are, are made from the clay, that if we acknowledge the truth of this reality, then we have the capacity then for repentance, to turn to the one who can, again, restore us to the fullness of life, who can heal us from that sin. And so if after a fall, we allow it to move us to repentance, uh, then that pride, that moment of pride works in our favor. And this is why he starts off the paragraph by saying, uh, who, who knows the mind of the Lord? That our God could be this merciful, that he could use even our sin in order to aid us to, to grow in the more important virtues of humility. So that he doesn't abandon us in that sin, but can even make use of it to draw us on in the spiritual life. And so often this happens, you know, that one would never make a spiritual gain so long as they remained caught up in that conceit, in that thought that they have attained a certain level of holiness. This is the struggle with the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, who are un unwilling to see any sin within themselves. Number 39, he who wants to overcome the demon of fornication with gluttony and surfeiting is like a man who puts out a fire with oil. So he draws us back here then to the previous step, that our struggle with impurity uh, is uh, impossible to fight without fasting. And so to think that we can give ourselves over to our bodily appetite for food or other appetites as well, sleep, drink, whatever it might be, that without uh, restraining ourselves of exercising the body in this, in, this, in this way, that we will never overcome this demon. And so if we think it, if we think that it's like a person trying to swim with one arm, you're never going to make progress or you're going to make pretty slow progress in making your way through the water and most likely drown in the end anyways. But Number 40, he who attempts to stop this war by temperance and by that alone is like a man who has the idea of escaping the sea by swimming with one hand, join humility to temperance because without the former, the latter is useless. So you can't enter into this battle without temperance, uh, but you also can't think that temperance alone is going to bring you to the shore. That added to that has to be the, the virtue of, of humility, relying upon the grace of God. So you absolutely need the temperance. You need to be fasting. You need to be controlling your appetites, but all, all of that is, all of those ascetic practices are to lead us toward God and the embrace of his grace, not to be seen as ends in themselves. And this is the whole thing about the ascetic life. You know, they, they did not enter into the desert simply 
you know, as an act of endurance. They, they did this in order that they might uh, run toward the bridegroom, that they might run toward Christ with a swiftness, uninhibited. And their asceticism had to serve that end, or they would be the most pitiable of all creatures, you know, of stripping themselves of everything, human contact, any kind of human comfort. If they, if they did not have before themselves the eyes of God, uh, I'm sorry, before themselves the, the love of God, then they would be living a life of insanity. Lawrence writes, sometimes we have to question if we are doing the right thing, but we don't have a spiritual director. Is there an equivalent of Ignatian discernment methods with the Desert Fathers? Well, you know, the, you know, for, certainly for the Desert Fathers, not walking the path alone uh, is always emphasized that uh, we're never going to be able to see the, and discern the, the truths about ourselves uh, without somebody guiding us who has experiential knowledge, who has a kind of deep wisdom rooted in the experience. Uh, but uh, I think what we are reading is very much like that. I mean, Ignatian spirituality makes use of a much different kind of form and form of prayer you know, the use of the imagination, intellect, you know, meditating upon various things from the scriptures, whereas the focus on the, of the Eastern spirituality is on the ascetic life. And as I just mentioned, it's purity of heart that brings about this capacity for discern, discernment. They saw a real danger of engaging solely in the kind of discursive meditation uh, and pursuit of discernment outside of the ascetic life, that because the imagination, the intellect and reason is so open to delusion uh, that more often than not, it was avoided, that what was essential was the ascetic life uh, of exercising the faith and exercising what is taught within the scriptures uh, and uh, seeking this purity of heart, uh, most of all. And uh, what, what uh, we've touched upon a few times, what they call the noose, the eye of the heart or the eye of the soul, uh, that this is what being purified through the ascetic life, the life of prayer, uh, through the grace of the sacraments, the purification of the noose allows us then to discern the truth about the things not only of this world and ourselves, but of God with clarity. We're able to discern the things that are of heaven, things that are godly. And, uh, and so I think the Ignatian uh, kind of discernment or how it's often maybe embraced in our day, I should say, uh, would seem completely foreign to them. Uh, in the same way that we've talked about like schools of theology outside of living something like the monastic life that is focused on the formation of mind and heart, that that would be demonic theology outside of pure purity of heart, that one would be, you know, without having entered into this spiritual battle, the capacity for delusion is great. And so to start speaking of discernment 
before having engaged in the ascetic life under the guidance of one who's lived it for decades of their life would be foolhardy or seeking guidance from one who hasn't lived that would be like the blind leading the blind. Uh, I think one of the things that we is valuable for us is that we do have the fathers accessible to us as never before. Thank goodness for that. You know, at a time when they're most needed, their writings are becoming more and more accessible to us where we can be immersed in them uh, and make use of the, the sacrament of confession and speak spiritual counsel where we can uh, to refine that discernment. Daniel writes, is that type of humility why someone such as Philip Neary can say, I've done nothing good today, uh, I will begin again and mean it? Because to the outside observer, obviously, Philip did much good. Absolutely. He knew what he was capable of in his weakness. And this phrase has been attributed to many, including Ignatius, but it was actually Philip Neary, there but the grace of God go I. That uh, outside uh, of the grace of God, I would fall into the same sin that I see another falling into, and maybe even worse. And this is what guided him in his life, you know, never to judge another, but ne uh, never to let down uh, his vigilance in terms of his prayer life and watchfulness of heart. Okay. Any other thoughts before we move on? Okay. Number 42. No, I'm sorry, number 41. He who sees that some passion is getting the better of him should first of all take up arms against this passion and moreover against the pa this passion alone, especially if it is the domestic foe, because until this passion is destroyed, we shall not derive any profit from the conquest of the other passions. When we have killed this Egyptian, we shall certainly see God in the bush of humility. <laughs> I love John's writings. And again, you see how deeply rooted he is in scripture here. So what he's telling us here is that we want to begin by battling the passion that has the greatest grip upon us. And often, you know, those beginning in the spiritual life, it is going to be the passions rooted in, in the flesh, in our appetites. And so to begin there, this is where you have to fight the battle uh, to defeat the demons there and to order the passions uh, and the, the desires behind the passions toward God. And so when you've killed this Egyptian, so making reference to Moses, uh, it's then that you can make this movement to the promised land. But until you've killed and buried in the sand that which has shackled you, that which has held you in bondage, that you're never going to be able to move forward. And so it's a, sort of a jarring statement to read it, you know, because you think, oh my gosh, you know, he's saying, you know, you have to kill the Egyptian here, but for good reason, you know, because unless we, we do that, and we hear other stories like this in the scriptures uh, uh, with the Canaanites, Joshua and the Canaanites, that Joshua did not drive them out fully and so uh, uh, Pope Shenouda III, in his book, Repentance 
and humility writes about this. There's a chapter dedicated to it that we often do not, uh, we allow the Canaanites to be in the land. We don't drive them out fully. So even we might uh, seemingly drive out the passions that we do not drive out the things and the attachments that lead to them. And so, so far as we leave a remnant of them within the land, we are vulnerable and going to be drawn back into those passions. And so we are to do what John says here, you know, or, uh, to, uh, to kill the Egyptian, bury him in the sand, and, uh, and in order that you can move on to the struggle with the other, other passions. And, uh, you know, I never heard that. I've, I've never had, had this vision of the spiritual life or the passions, except in reading the fathers, the desert fathers, this kind of clarity about the in, internal spiritual warfare. And I think the more our generation becomes disconnected from the spiritual tradition and the lived spiritual tradition, as we see it in the, the saints, then we seek to leapfrog over this and we become attached to certain aspects of spiritual traditions or charisms uh, or like the contemplative life of the Carmelites and the writings of John of the Cross. Extraordinary, beautiful, but those are taken for granted, you know, that one has entered into the Carmel and has died to self and all the things of the world and is living this deep life of prayer. And so John is talking about the contemplative life, yes, but uh, to sort of thrust a person into that or to say, okay, this is how you engage in the contemplative life without guiding them to struggle with the passions. Again, you're setting them up for, for terrible falls or delusion that can be incredibly destructive. And I think we hear in conversation, modern day discussions about the spiritual life, this so often, and the language that we hear about discernment, whether it's discernment of vocation or discernment of what one's going to do on a given day, you know, this kind of disconnect from the exercise of the faith, that is from asceticism. And among even contemporary Eastern writers, you know, that there is no Christianity that is not creedal, ecclesial, and ascetical. You know, we believe in a revealed religion. Uh, we believe in uh, a sacramental uh, uh, faith that arises out of the incarnation, that God makes himself present to us uh, and continues to make himself present to us in and through the, the church and through the sacraments, and that we are called to exercise that faith, take hold of the grace that is given to us in order to embrace the love given in, in freedom to us with freedom, but fully. And as with so many things in this life, we want to take it almost like in a consumerist way, take hold of it quickly, you know, without effort and to experience the fruit of it without really having any true knowledge of it, what it means, its preciousness. Any thoughts or comments? Uh, okay, Laura Lee. Laura Lee, uh, my Egyptian is food. So I am 
to turn the power behind that appetite towards its source, which is God, yes, right. Can you explain a little more what that means in practical terms? That is, how exactly does one kill the Egyptian? What uh, it depends on, uh, would it depend on what Egyptian it is? Yes, and, uh, but, you know, temperance, he uses is the word, uh, which would be the ordering of appetite. So in regards to food in particular, that fasting, would become a regular part of our spiritual life. Not episodic, not two days a year, but regular part of our life. So that we are understanding who we are as human beings and where we struggle with in our passions, we would engage in the practice of fasting uh, uh, regularly and build that up over the course of time, deepen that until we've overcome that passion. And the Desert Fathers, as we've talked about in this group many times, practice fasting on a daily basis. They ate once a day, so they kept a 24-hour fast and deepened that prayer, especially towards the end of the fast, knowing how important it was in this spiritual battle. And so we are called to the same sanctity, the same holiness, and we fight the same spirit of spiritual battle. And so we are to practice fasting on a regular basis. And uh, we, again, want to do that in a measured way, avoiding extremes, but nonetheless develop that discipline over the course of time, guided by, again, by the wisdom and the experience of the fathers. And again, this is something that I never heard about in, in, except through the fathers. And... Uh, and to love the virtue and to love the practice of fasting for what it brings us. So not to look at it as, again, something, a painful kind of endurance, but something that promises us the satisfaction of being filled by the love of the heavenly bridegroom, by he who is the bread of life. And so, again, we have to reshape our, our view of reality. And the more that we enter into this relationship with the Lord, the more that we engage in the ascetic life, the more we begin to see of that. Things begin to open up for us on the horizon in order that we might pursue them more fully and begin to run towards them rather than dragging ourselves along or walking around in circles or taking one step forward and two steps back. <laughs> So, so I know, I know this is a lot, again, and uh, even within a few paragraphs, but the wisdom here, I think, is so essential for the day-to-day -day struggle that we have in the spiritual life. So allow yourself to go back over it, read it. Uh, these can be ever so subtle. I mean, John puts them before us pretty clearly, but the movement of the mind and the heart can be swift. Uh, at one point here, uh, he talks about it being uh, like a flash in the mind, like a flash of lightning, that there can be this movement in the thoughts or within the heart. And so we have to train the mind and the heart to be able to see these things with greater and greater clarity. 
I uh, just saw one final comment coming up. Ashley writes, this makes me think a lot about A Christmas Carol when Scrooge is first visited by Marley and then he's fearful of this chain wrapped all around his friend more than the fact that he's a ghost. And Marley asks him, do you know the weight and length of the chain you bear yourself? And I think that's a lot like this Egyptian and how we may not know we are slaves to our sin and wrapped in chains. Absolutely, that's excellent. I mean, we often we are blind to it and uh, as well as being blind to do exactly uh, what John is telling us, which is to kill it. And uh, Brad says, here's something similar. It's similar to Psalm 137 about dashing the infants against the stone, uh, dealing with the sin early and completely right. Uh, you never hear that psalm within the liturgy. <laughs> Strangely enough, dashing the head of infants against the stone. But uh, uh, the fathers didn't let one word of the scriptures pass. They, they could see exactly as Brad puts it here, dealing with it early and completely and being sort of merciless about it. There's a kind of holy violence that the fathers talk about. Uh, the, the kingdom of heaven suffers violent and the violent bear it away. And, uh, and so there are times when we have to act swiftly and quickly like this. The title of the Pope Shenouda book is Repentance and, uh, I'm sorry. The Life of Repentance and Purity. The Life of Repentance and Purity. And it's available on Amazon. Superb book. So... One, one that I would highly recommend. So that brings us to 8.30. And uh, so we'll stop there uh, for this week. Uh, thank you all for, for joining. And I ask you to keep me in, in your prayers, if you would. I know that I'm always praying for you, especially at each liturgy. And uh, so why don't we close, as always here this night, with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go Amen. Amen.